Well, good morning, friends. It's a real privilege to be here once again and to be able to share the Word of God with you. It's my joy and my great privilege. And may the Lord bless you. Last Tuesday, we celebrated the 4th of July with its great emphasis on freedom. And the idea of freedom is so compelling to me that it seems appropriate that we think of it a little bit more this morning. And I was particularly moved as I remembered the words on the tomb of Martin Luther King, Jr. And those words were free, free at last. Thank God I'm free. Several years ago in South Africa, following the release from prison of Nelson Mandela, the headlines in our newspapers were very moving and dramatic. And they said, freedom, free, free at last. And people sang and they danced in the streets and they smiled and they shouted and they were jubilant. And in more recent times, you may recall the speeches of President Bush touting freedom as the yearning of people everywhere. And the human spirit longs to be free. And freedom is one of the great, joyful experiences of life. And if you would, please, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John's Gospel, chapter 8. And we'll just read a few verses there. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Reading at verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are true disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, You will be free indeed. May God bless the reading of his word to us. What a great passage. It's one of the great passages in the Bible with its discussion of truth and slavery and freedom and discipleship. And the Lord Jesus himself speaks to us about what are truly the great basics of life. What are the basics of life? And my, person, my reason for presenting the subject is because it conforms to the message that Jesus came to preach. And Jesus tells us in one of the Gospels, Luke chapter 4, that the Spirit, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And there are three basics that I want to talk about this morning. First of all, I'd like to discuss true discipleship. What are the basic characteristics of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Secondly, I'd like to discuss bondage 
or slavery and freedom. And lastly, I want to talk about real freedom. What does it mean to be free indeed? Well, let's begin with discussing true discipleship. What is true discipleship? What does it mean to be a real disciple of our Lord? Our text gives us the answer. And if you reread with me in John chapter 8, verse 31, and I'd like to suggest that you keep a marker there because we're going to refer to that again. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. This means that the disciples will continually practice the teachings of Christ and make them a part of his daily life. As verse 31 tells us, some of the people believed Jesus. Now the question is, how deeply did that belief penetrate their soul? And Jesus immediately probes and puts it to the test. Every person who is truly a disciple will continue. About 25 years ago, a friend of mine who is a cabinet maker uh, gave me a little plaque. And he, and he did a good job with it. It was an arrow and it was pointing to my left. And on it it said, persevere. Continue. Stick with it. Don't let anything deter you. That's a disciple. One who continues on. Every true disciple will continue. Spasmatic obedience to the Scripture will not do it. Half-hearted obedience to the Word of God will not do it. Playing games with the Scriptures doesn't do it. Dabbling at prayer and Bible study doesn't do it. Well, what are some of the characteristics of a disciple? What are some of the teachings that we have that tell us what a disciple is? I want to make four suggestions. First, and most importantly from verse 32, a disciple is one who has been set free. He's a set free person. A disciple will know the truth about himself and he'll know the truth about God. Now, knowing the truth is sometimes a hard thing. Sometimes a hard thing. And the Scripture always tells us the truth. And the truth is that everyone in this room is a sinner. You like that kind of truth? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And we face eternal condemnation. Do you like that kind of a truth? Well, that's not where it stops. Because following that news, there's some good news. There's some good news. The Bible also tells us the truth that we might not only escape eternal condemnation, but it tells us how we might be born into the family of God. Now, that's great news. Good news. It's important to understand also that when we speak about the truth, it needs to be defined in the Hebrew sense, 
rather than in the Greek sense. Truth in the Greek sense is intellectual. Notice what do you have between your frontal lobes. It means to know the real meaning of something. It means to know all the correct facts and all of the data and to be able to put all that data together. That's truth in the Greek sense. But truth in the Hebrew sense is a whole lot more. Truth in the Hebrew sense means to walk in the path of righteousness. It means practicing right living. Truth is not something abstract. It's practical. And if you say you know the truth, this definition says that you know truth if you live by it. Otherwise, it's only theoretical. Now, this next statement I want to make, I wrote down because I want to get it right. But I think it's so tremendously important. So, hear this. When a person is set free... They live and act in harmony with the purpose for which they were made. We were made with a purpose. And we live in harmony. When we live in harmony with that purpose, we are the freest that we can possibly be. We were not meant to be sinners. So when we sin, we're not free. It is an expression of freedom to be loving and kind to someone. It's an expression of slavery to be mean and hateful and oppressive. It's an expression of freedom to use wholesome words rather than crude, smutty, dirty language, which in fact are words of bondage. That's characteristic number one. A true disciple is one who has been set free. Praise God. Now, for sake of time, I will briefly mention three other suggestions that characterize a true disciple. Number one was a true disciple is a person who has been set free. Number two, a true disciple of Jesus has a zeal for God. And the word zeal is a passionate word. It means to burn, literally. It means to have fire in your bones. You know what I mean when I say that? To have fire in your bones. You're not wishy-washy in the least. Half-heartedness and lukewarmness just doesn't do it. And Jesus himself said, zeal for your house has eaten me up. How did you know? Thank you. You know what the world tells us? Don't be a fanatic. Don't be a fanatic. Don't be a Bible thumper, whatever that is. Don't be a fundamentalist weirdo of all things, you know. Are there any zealots for God here this morning? Amen. Amen. Well, thirdly, a true disciple has a profound faith 
and a living God. When the world says impossible, you know what faith says? Well, if that's the only problem, then it can't be done. Someone said that a, an oak tree is a little nut that wouldn't give up. And the Scripture reminds us that without sin, it is impossible to please God. How many times did you or I please God this past week? Hmm? If you were not living by faith this past week, on what basis did you then live? Ouch. And fourthly, a true disciple has a deep love for other people. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John thirteen thirty five. This is the love that takes others into consideration. It's the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. It's the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 speaks of, to be patient, to be kind, to be without envy, to not brag, to not keep a record of wrongs that have been done. It isn't proud, etc., etc. Without this kind of love, discipleship would be a cold legalistic ritual. I want to give you an example of love. When Kathleen was recovering from her stroke 16 years ago at John Muir Hospital in Walnut Creek, the whole floor there got to know what Christian love was all about. A few Christians came to her room. They brought their guitars and they had a little Christian concert in her room. It was kind of neat to see the nurses come to the door to see some orderlies come to the door, to see even a few doctors come to the door and listen. And uh, I suspect that a whole number of them said, wow. On another day, after getting permission from the doctors and the floor staff, we wheeled Kathleen into a larger room, and there we held a Bible study with a group of loving Christians. And again, many of the hospital staff came. They saw, they observed love in action. We need to ask ourselves, how loving am I? It's a sign of discipleship. So friends, keep on loving. You already are a loving group, but keep on. Keep on, persevere, continue. Now the second great basic I want to talk about is bondage and freedom. Jesus says in verse 34 of our chapter, chapter 8, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is the slave of sin. To practice sin is to experience a bondage. A person is really free when sin no longer rules over him. Now, that doesn't mean that a person becomes perfect. It means sin no longer dominates one's life, and now that, that, now that person's ambition is to please God. 
The person, let me ask you a few questions. The person who freely chooses to date drugs and is now an addict, is he free? He freely chose. The person who freely chooses to live a life of sexual immorality and now has a disease, is he free? The person who chooses a lifestyle of crime and is now in prison, is that person free? The person who seeks to earn his salvation apart from the grace of God, is he really free or is he in the bondage of trying to pay a price that he can never pay? Not free. The American philosopher Arthur Kessler said so correctly, I don't often quote him, but he said, there is no prison. There is no bondage from which a person can escape than the one which gives him the illusion or pretense of freedom. That is the greatest prison of them all. When we are deluded into thinking that we are free, when we in fact are not. As verse 34 tells us, the truth of the matter is sin is slaves. When a person says or thinks, I'll do what I want, it's my life. When that person won't listen to wise counsel and then makes choices, choices that are harmful, is he really free? I'm so glad that Jesus told me the truth, that I was a sinner. Because hearing that truth, though not very nice, I don't like to be called a sinner, but, I, but that's what I am. But then he tells me the remedy. Gives me the remedy. And I just think that's great. Now, if you have your Bible still with you, uh, and I think you do, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning to read at verse 12, we'll read three verses, 12, 13, and 14. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by any. Here's a strange verse, and I want you to keep this in mind. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Verse 12 tells us that though... There are a lot of desirable toys in life, toys in life. We ought not to be mastered by that desire. Why? Because even if the toys in themselves are not sinful, to be mastered by that desire is to enter into another kind of bondage. 
Something that holds the mastery over me suggests that I am in a bondage. Even if they're toys. Even if they're lawful toys. Well, how does Paul define freedom? And I told you about that little strange verse there, verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, I think Paul is talking about this. Paul is defining freedom in terms of purpose. In terms of what something is designed or made for. Please follow me. The purpose of food is to be eaten. And the stomach is the normal place for food in order that the digestive process might take place. That is the way we were designed by God. We live in a world where everything has a design and a function. For example, you don't set a little old fish free from a body of water and allow it to experience dry land, do you? Even if you should reason, poor fish, so confined and so restricted, doesn't know what land feels like. How terrible to not allow it to be set free in order to experience something dry for a change, like a nice, dry, sandy desert. Wow. Food is for the stomach. And the stomach is for food. Fish were designed for water. And water was designed for fish. Elementary, right, Watson? Hmm? Fish are freest when they are doing what they are designed to do. Perhaps we don't know how fish feel in the ocean or whether they feel enslaved. What we do know, that is, if we change the environment for which they were created, they die rather quickly. Again, I want to remind you what I said before. People, you and I are most free when we are in harmony with the reason for which we were created. Paul says in our passage that the purpose for the body is not for sexual immorality, but our body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. We were made in the image of God and we were made to glorify God and we are most free, we are most happy, we are most blessed, we are most congruent when we glorify God in everything. Amen. That's what this passage is talking about. The purpose for our body is not drunkenness or drug addiction. The purpose for our lives was not to live in conflict and slavery. The purpose for our lives was not to live in alienation from God and people. And the great reason for the unhappiness in our world is because the purposes of God for our lives has been violated. That's why there's a lot of unhappiness in the world. God's purposes are set aside as if he didn't know what he was doing. You know, Paul wrote these words to a very immoral city. 
And you know what? They thought they were liberated. They thought they were liberated. The people's lifestyle there was characterized by immorality. And the philosophers and the great thinkers and the pagan religious leaders saw nothing wrong with sexual immorality, gross idolatry, a hedonistic lifestyle. You know, hedonism is not all that unusual. When I was in graduate school, my professor stood up one day and said, quote, I am a hedonist. And then she went on to explain that uh, hedonism is pleasure-seeking, and she wanted to get all the pleasure that she could possibly get out of life. Well, she was missing one of the greatest places to get pleasure, and that is to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It was to this kind of people, though, hedonistic, that Paul announces the great principles relating to freedom. Real freedom, real freedom, with a capital R, has the highest good for the individual as its goal. Real freedom does not enslave. Rather, it releases. Real freedom has purpose. God wants to bring us in line for the fulfillment of the purpose for which he created us. I'd like to again ask the question suggested by verse 38. Verse 38 reads, verse 36, excuse me. Verse 36, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So again, what does it mean to be free indeed? First of all, I want us to notice that people can have a false sense of freedom. I mentioned that before. And notice how it's expressed in our passage. Verse 33, people were saying, now I'm going to paraphrase, I'm a relative of Abraham. I've got Abraham's DNA in my body. That ought to count for something. Or I was brought up in a Christian home. I was baptized. I'm a church member. I give money to the church occasionally. I'm not a bad person. That ought to count for something. That's what they were saying. You know, with these kinds of credentials, the people argued in verse 33, how is it that you say you will become free? And I guess they were implying, you know, that, uh, you know, we're already free. And you don't need to tell us that we need to become free because we're already free. That's what they were saying. They had a false illusion of what freedom really was all about. And perhaps they might even have said, why did not you go and preach this stuff to the Samaritans? You know, somebody who needs it. Or the street people. Or the drunks on Skid Row. They're the ones that really need to be set free, don't they? Oh, really? You know, there are many different kinds of prisons. 
different kinds of enslavement. Some prisons don't have bars or guards or walls. But so many people who are enslaved, who are not free. And it's because they lack that relationship with God. And Jesus reminds these people, and he's going to get down to the nub of things. He reminds them of several things in the balance of chapter 8 of John. I noticed five things. I just want to very briefly just mention them. In verse 37, they had hatred in their hearts. They wanted to kill Jesus. Anyone that is dominated by hate and wants to kill somebody, is that person free? I don't think so. Secondly, verse 37, they had no room for the teachings of Jesus. They were turning Jesus off. They would not listen to the truth. They were going ahead on their own without the voice of God coming down and speaking to them. Were they free? Number three in verse 39. They did not reflect in their life Abraham-like deeds. Abraham was a friend of God, Scripture says. One of the, great, one of the greatest verses, I'll say it that way, in the Old Testament is Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham was a believer in God. He believed the words that God said and he acted on the words that God said. So much so that one day God said to him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, take him up into the mountain and offer him to God. You know what, Abraham? Started on the journey. Went up there. And in a very real sense, he offered up his son, Isaac, to God. He believed God. These people didn't. In verse 42, they failed to love Jesus because they did not know God as Father. They weren't in the family that really mattered. And lastly, verse 47. God's people hear God's words. They were not godly, therefore they did not hear God's words. Well, what does it mean to be free indeed? In verse 36, we have introduced to us the great liberator. And his name is not Abraham Lincoln. His name is Jesus. He's the great freedom giver. He's the great emancipator. And when the Son sets us free, 
when he unties the shackles, when he removes the chains, when he says to us, you are forgiven, you are free indeed. To be free indeed means that the Lord Jesus has personally come into our lives. He personally responds to our need because He's the only one that can free us. He's the only one that's got the key, you know. He's the only one that's got the combination. It means that my former lifestyle is the thing of the past. And again, I want to say that this doesn't mean perfection, but rather that the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of God have become foremost in my life. To be free indeed is to have a permanent place in the family of God. To be free indeed means to have God as our Father. To be free indeed is to belong to God and to hear what God says. And to be free at last. To be free indeed is to be able to say, free at last. Free at last. Thank God, I'm free. I'm free. Are you all free here this morning? Would you like to be free if you're not? This is a great opportunity to to be free. To have the sin question settled. To have the prospect of condemnation, condemnation no longer facing me square in the face. To be free. To be able to say, Father... Father. You know, we often open our prayer time by saying, Father. And so we do. We do it because of that relationship that we have entered into and which is available to each person here this morning who says, yes, Lord, I want a relationship with you. I know I'm a sinner and I know you came to set me free. Is there anyone here that would like to say, yes, I would like to Be free today. Let's just bow our heads and pray. And if there is someone here who would like to say that, I want you to raise your hand quickly. Yes, we call you Father because we are your children. And we thank you for that privilege, that high privilege that you gave to us when we became aware of the debt that we could not pay. And we became also aware that you paid the ransom in full. So, Father, we pray this morning for each person here. Each person here who can Say, thank you, Lord, for setting me free. Bless this, your fellowship of your people. Thank you for your being with us this morning. We give you thanks in the name and for the sake of the one who sets us free, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.